0: Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 26, the New International Version. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment but God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Will you pray with me, please? God, who speaks to us and moves us in more ways than we even realize, we pray that your spirit would come into this space, would move in our hearts, in our bones, would set us free where we need set free and put us in motion to do your work in this world. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Welcome to the second week of our National Park Series, where we are heading to the Everglades. Who has been there? Who's been to the Everglades? I didn't get any pictures of the Everglades. (laughs) I don't know. Next week is Death Valley. So if you have those, come on and send them. The Everglades was a tough sell as a national park, I learned, all the way back to the earliest campaigns in the 1920s and 30s. It is hot and flat and swampy and buggy. It's not that easy to hike there unless you want to put on waders and slosh through water that could be full of any number of crocodiles, snakes, or other creepy things hanging out in the muck. The momentum of the National Parks movement at the turn of the 20th century was geared more toward creating economic opportunity in places that were mostly in the West, where the terrain was such that you couldn't build or farm. People got behind making something a National Park with the promise that it would draw tourists in for the views and the recreational activities. The Everglades was like the opposite of this. Land in Florida was very desirable for both real estate and for oil exploration. Prospectors in the 1910s and 20s were draining swamps right and left so that buildings could go up. There was a promise of rich oil reserves ready for the taking. And stopping all of this economic activity to create a national park that did not have sweeping vistas or opportunities for tourist activities was a decidedly unpopular idea. The mindset was that swamps were wasteland. Swamps were completely useless to humanity unless they were drained and converted to farmland, real estate, or open for oil or mineral exploration. In the 1920s, a landscaped architect named Ernest Coe moved from New Haven, Connecticut to South Florida, hoping to get in on the land boom there. But instead, he unexpectedly fell in love with the Everglades, with the rare orchids and the abundance of bird species, the sounds and the mystery of the wetland wilderness. He was alarmed by how quickly it was all disappearing as more and more of the land was drained and developed. Coe, who himself had come to Florida to get rich off of the land, saw that this expanse of wilderness was to be valued for more than real estate, more than oil, more than any obvious usefulness to humanity at all. This place, he argued, was to be valued for its incredible biodiversity. For the nine distinct habitats contained there, 360 species of birds, 100 species just of native grasses, not to mention algae and marine plants and manatees and panthers and turtles and fish and frogs. Some species found nowhere else on the planet. The Everglades isn't actually a swamp. It's a huge, slow moving, freshwater river. It's 50 miles wide a hundred miles long and about six inches deep on average throughout. It meets the ocean at a place, the only ecosystem in the world where both freshwater alligators and saltwater crocodiles coexist. This place should be a park, Ernest Coe said in 1925. This place of unmatched diversity in wildlife and plant life should be protected and preserved. 20 years and many, many political fights later, it was so. Let's put a pin in that story that place and that time, and transport ourselves even farther back in history, to another place where bodies of water meet, providing immense economic opportunity. An unparalleled coexistence of very different groups. Ancient Corinth was not exactly Florida, but it was a powerful and politically active, multi-layered place on a gulf. Corinth was a former Greek city. By the time Paul got there, it was a Roman city. It was on a narrow isthmus between two seas. Corinth was a bridge between worlds, a meeting point for poor immigrants and wealthy traders, for freed slaves of Greek, Syrian, Jewish, and Egyptian origin. Now Ernest Coe came upon the most biodiverse cluster of habitats he had ever encountered and said, we need a park here. The Apostle Paul came to a bustling urban center unlike anything he'd ever seen in diversity of ethnicity, cultures, and religions, and said, we need a church here. Here's a good spot. And so he started one with a congregation that likely reflected the diversity of the city, with some wealthy but many not as wealthy members, people from multiple countries, backgrounds, social locations, Recognizing the value in this, the richness and unique ministry that a church in Corinth could have, Paul preached the gospel and got the congregation started. Well, the thing is, diversity is great, but it's also hard. The abundant variety of species living side by side in the Everglades is, we know, a marvel and a gift and a mark of a healthy ecosystem But when you think about alligators and crocodiles and panthers and grasshoppers that are three and a half inches long and all kinds of bird and oh yeah, the 23 species of snakes, there's a certain amount of tension of unpredictable movement, competing interests for sure. And nothing is contained in a box or like behind a fence. And I don't know, it sounds like a hard place to feel at ease. Diversity is not meat or easy. Paul started this church in Corinth and almost immediately there was infighting. People broke off into factions, they'd operate their own house churches in their own neighborhoods with like the people just like them, and then they'd get together as a large congregation for worship every once in a while, but mostly they would just fight, they'd argue about what was morally right what was theologically sound, whether or not Paul had authority over them, what the right Christian practices were, whether poor people should be fully included in the life of the church. They broke into factions and each faction tried to gain control over the whole church. They also decided that some spiritual gifts like being able to speak in tongues or ecstatic speech elevated your status in the church. While merely being a good listener or a plain old Sunday school teacher meant you were less spiritually gifted. What a mess. So Paul's letter to the Corinthians is kind of an extended reprimand. The very first part of his letter, this is the message translation of chapter one says, I appeal to you brothers and sisters, I will put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other you must learn to be considerate of one another cultivating a life in common the whole letter now the book we call first corinthians continues like this paul is saying we're not going to have a jewish church and a roman church an elite church an educated church a slave church a military church one church and then we get to the part that Pamela read for us today that was a long one thank you thank you Pamela the part where Paul says the fact that you are all so different and have varying talents and alternative perspectives and come from vastly different stories that is not like an obstacle to overcome that is as hard as it might seem right now what God intends This is the dream, for you to be a body, for us to be a body. If we're all the same, we're just like a useless collection of the same body part. But if we're all fully alive as our individual selves, with our particular personalities and skills and wisdoms and graces, when we come together, we're a masterpiece of God, a body that has come alive. One of the quarrels you remember in this Corinthian church was about whether some spiritual gifts were more valuable than others. And so that's why Paul spells this out so intentionally in chapter 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, activities, but the same God. The speakers are no greater than the listeners. Everyone is needed, everyone is valued, and what's valued above all is the heterogeneity of God's children who come to the table together. So do not squelch this. Do not weed out the ones who are different by making them feel conspicuous and out of place. Paul says, don't build little mini churches only for one kind of people, or break off and do your own thing when a decision in the church doesn't go your way. Don't compromise the integrity of the body by putting all the noses in one place, or by saying, there's no place for crummy little toenails here. God has so arranged the body, Paul writes multiple times in chapter 12. God has so arranged the body to thrive in the diversity it contains. Diversity is of God. It's a gift of value. It is God's intention for creation. And yet, it's not necessarily a societal value not necessarily an economic value or something we have built our neighborhoods or our businesses or our political structures, our educational institutions, or even our churches around. The advocates for Everglades National Park had to convince people in power that the unmatched biodiversity it contained was in fact immensely valuable. They had to persuade governments and businesses and voters to set aside immediate monetary profit and ideas of what was popular or attractive and hold as more critically important the diversity that would disappear if it wasn't protected. There have always had to be, it seems, people who will put themselves on the line to call the rest of society to task, to keep diversity, as a priority, both in terms of nature and wilderness and in terms of human nature and human institutions. The pull toward homogeneity, toward conformity and sameness and avoiding difference because it makes us uncomfortable is just so strong that there always has to be an active, passionate voice calling us to togetherness across lines of difference. And the church, I believe, has to be that voice. The calling is so clear throughout scripture in these letters to early churches and in the stories and the practices of our tradition that the church, meaning the people who make up the church, must be ordering our lives and our community in a way that unmistakably reflects a value of diversity. And so how are we doing that North Bethesda? And how can we do better? Well, we can make a conscious choice to value it, which means we prioritize it when we make our church budget or our personal budget. It's a value that's reflected in what books we choose to read, again, both personally and as a church who we ask to speak, the music that we expose ourselves to, the people we look to as leaders, all of these seemingly small choices that we can make with intention to ensure that North Bethesda continues to be a church that is not just for one kind of people. There's a need always for education, for listening to more perspectives, learning more stories, humbling ourselves to recognize that there's much we don't understand. And that often fear or hatred is rooted in a lack of understanding. I read this on a plaque at the reptile house in the National Zoo a long time ago. And it came back to me when I was watching creepy snake videos on the Everglades website this week. One theory One theory as to why there is almost universally a visceral human reaction to snakes, like why they make us recoil so instinctively, is because the way they move is absolutely incomprehensible to us. Their ability to move quickly across land with no legs is so beyond our experience or what we think of as logical that it terrifies us on like an evolutionary level. Other things can be scary, like spiders and lions or whatever it is that gets you, but snakes, because of this extreme difference that makes them so very outside of us, top the list. We fear what we don't understand, what we can't connect to, And so that education piece, building bridges so that there are bridges between what we characterize as them and us is so vital. In her poem, Turning to One Another, Margaret Wheatley says, remember you don't fear people whose story you know. Another crucial part of living out our value of diversity is to remember that because of all the forces at work, the structures of our society, segregation of all kinds that has been institutionalized as well as our learned behaviors and our human psychology, diversity in communities can be hard to come by. And it needs to be actively protected and advocated for. It's simply not the default way of being in our world. And that's something that God is calling on us to change. That means that yes, we advocate for a restoration of affirmative action, that we stand up and speak out for God's kind of justice. And God's kind of justice is referenced in Paul, Here in 1 Corinthians, where he's still talking about the body, and he says, God has ordered the body so that the more vulnerable parts are given more protection. The ones looked down on as inferior or weak are actually vitally important parts that we wouldn't respect are actually given greater honor. He says that if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. So God's justice isn't necessarily treating everyone exactly the same, but is in fact recognizing that some people, some groups of people have been historically cut down, kept away from prosperity or property, undermined and silenced and made vulnerable, And that extra effort must be made on the part of the whole body to make sure that those groups and those people are protected and safe. That They have viable pathways to achieve their full potential. Extra effort must be made to ensure that the whole body remains healthy, that it remains composed of a diverse array of people and gifts. We are called to advocate as a church in the public sphere, but also to practice in our own sphere. To recognize that many of us in this church don't have to wonder if we're welcome, if we're welcome in this church or in leadership or to stand up here and read or in other ministries, but some people do. Some people do, they cannot assume that they are welcome in this church because of socioeconomic status or sexuality or a disability or a language difference, or because they have noisy children or they dress in a certain way. And so what are we doing about that so that it's clear, so that when someone stands at the threshold and wonders, We send every signal in every way that we can to say you are indeed most welcome here. And not only welcome, but you are needed here. Your gifts are important here because the last piece of this, I think, is that we have to immerse ourselves in the mindset in the truth that we each carry only a small part of God's vision of God's message. And we truly do need people who are vastly different from us in every way to make a whole. Paul's metaphor of the body is so apt because it communicates that a church only functions if it contains many different parts. A bunch of eyes is not a body. A bunch of all the same people with the same skill sets and ideas and perspectives is not a church. A quote by Henry Nowen that plays itself in my head quite often, quite often in my life says, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. So maybe if you find yourself in a situation with a person who makes you roll your eyes or wanna put in headphones or vent text to your circle of friends who think just like you. Maybe pause for a second and wonder if this person is part of the community that God is calling you to build right now. Maybe not, but I found at least they usually are there's usually a gift to be found under all that discomfort. As Paul says to his divided church at Corinth, when you come together, the spirit is surely there. A hundred years ago, almost, a northerner transplanted to Florida made a case that diversity for diversity's sake is a rich gift and we should value it and we should give up what we need to give up to protect it. The ecosystem of the Everglades made up of tens of thousands of species of plants and insects and animals in a hot and largely inaccessible wetland is messy and unwieldy and there's a whole lot of muck. Just like a human body made up of a whole bunch of tiny parts can also be messy and unwieldy and not always dignified. There's much we don't understand or want to think about in our bodies. These metaphors, the Everglades, our bodies, plus our very real experience of life in church or other communities illustrate that diversity isn't always neat and pretty or comfortable, but it is sacred. It is beautiful and rich and irreplaceable and absolutely vital. And so by God's grace, we as North Bethesda heed the call to prioritize and protect and educate and celebrate and proclaim that God has made diversity a primary value. And so shall we. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for being present as part of the body. Your gift or your presence in itself is a gift. A reminder to join us for coffee hour and to sing happy birthday to Jack after the service. Come back next week. We will be going on to Death Valley. And I thank you again, Lena, for coming in. And at this last minute, you are a gift as well. And now may the God who created a world of diversity and vibrancy go with us as we (laughs) embrace life in all its fullness. May the son who teaches us to care for stranger and foreigner go with us as we try to be good neighbors in our communities. And may the spirit who breaks down our barriers and celebrates community Go with us as we find the courage to create a place of welcome for all. Go in peace. Amen. NBUMC Weekly is a production of North Bethesda United Methodist Church located in Bethesda, Maryland. Follow us on YouTube and Facebook at North Bethesda UMC or on Instagram at LovingAllNeighbors. All music is licensed via Christian Copyright Licensing International, CCLI.